Happy Monday, friends. It's Cordelia on the We Healed Together podcast. I missed you guys last week. It was the first podcast I took off in 32 weeks. I just went through a move. I moved across the country and yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't fit an episode in there. So I missed you guys. Happy to be back. This week's episode is with the incredible Dr. Marielle Bouquet, and we are discussing intergenerational trauma. She is so amazing. If you follow me on Instagram, I share her stuff to my story all the time. I love her work, her posts, her videos, her word posts. They're all so incredible. Check out my show notes, follow her, support her work. She's such a light in the world and she truly does like, it always makes me feel happy to see her stuff. She is a Columbia Columbia University trained licensed psychologist, a holistic mental health expert and sound bath meditation healer. Her work centers on helping people heal their whole selves through holistic mental wellness practices and on healing wounds of intergenerational trauma. She also focuses on delivering healing and anti-racism lessons in workshops as she believes in the liberations of our minds and of oppressive systems as necessary qualities of our overall wellness. She is an incredible lady. I can't wait for you guys to listen to today's episode. Again, please check out the show notes. Check out her Instagram follow her, support her, just everything she's doing. It's incredible. And as always, check out the show notes for all the info on me to follow me to, you know, get more info out about my work as well. Also, I put book recommendations in the show notes about the books that we discuss in today's episode too. So check that out, relax, get comfortable for today's episode on intergenerational trauma. Let's get healing, y'all. Yay. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you and welcome, welcome. As I've said many times, you're one of my favorite therapists on Instagram. I love your content, love your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I'm I'm very thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it means so much to me. I feel like you know, I always look forward to your posts because I feel like I learn a lot from them and not just your your written posts, but I also like your videos. I like how you connect with your audience and you you provide a really healing space and welcoming content in that way as well. So I look forward to those too. I'm so glad that, you know, they could <laughs> feel enlightening and and that you enjoy them. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. So before we get into today, you know, kind of the meat of the episode of talking about intergenerational trauma, I kind of wanted to just learn a little bit about you. If and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you're from the Dominican Republic. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I was born there. That's awesome. So what part of Dominican Republic were you born in? I was born in the capital, which is Santo Domingo, um, and it's right in the south, southern border of the Dominican Republic. Not a lot of people uh, tend to visit the capital unless they're really from there, um, but it is uh, it does have its own charm. Yeah, that's amazing. So how old were you when you 
came to the United States from Dominican Republic? I was five. Um, so I still remember bits and pieces of having lived there. Um, they're small fragments, um, but they they are definitely uh, moments that I hold dear in my heart and moments that, that really uh, still, uh, you know, shape me to this day. Um, and I was fortunate that my mother really wanted us to still have some of the culture um, even while we were living here. And so we would travel very often, actually, uh, every year to the Dominican Republic for like a month uh, at a time. Oh, so wow. We had a good um, connection to the culture, even though we came here when we were young. That's so, I don't know, that's just, that had to have been a lot for, as a parent, to have that kind of foresight and dedication to keep up with that so I think that's really incredible that your mom you know carved out that space to be sure to kind of be sure that you still had that part of you Mm -hmm. yeah I'm really appreciative because um I feel very Americanized as they say right um right I, I don't think at this part of my life I guess I can really kind of uh, detached from U.S. culture, but I'm very fortunate that I have this whole side of me that um, just feels so rich and and has so much within it, and and it feels familiar and still feels like home. Um, the food still feels like home. The music still feels like home, and there's just so much, um, you know, in the nuances, the sayings, like. The fact that I was able to retain the full Spanish language and, and be, you know, fully bilingual and work in the in, in a bilingual way as well, because I work also in Spanish, um, it's something that I, I treasure, and a lot of that is thanks to my mom. Oh, well, that's so incredible. I mean, truly, I think that's really, like I said, I think that takes a lot to of her to do, and I think that hearing you talk about it it feels like a really important part of you and mm-hmm. that's really special yeah where in the U.S. did you did you move to um when you guys first came to the U.S. and was it did you have any siblings was it just you and your mom what was that like yeah I have um like I'm completely and utterly attached to my sister. She's like, she's my best friend. And she's also my, <laughs> she's like my confidant. She's kind of like my pseudo therapist. I don't, I don't know what else, <laughs> other roles she plays in my life. Um, but we've always, um, we were actually raised, you know, to be very close. My mom always called us yeah. her right and her left lung. Um, so Aww. I think we kind of always operated, um, you know, from the perspective that we'll always have each other. So she was eight, I was five. She's, you know, my older sister, um, obviously. And she um, was also just really wise beyond her years. Um, when we landed here, we um, we came to a place where there was already some family. So we ping-ponged between Newark, New Jersey and Montclair, New Jersey. And, okay. and so in Newark, we finally landed and we spent 23 years of our lives in Newark. And so most of my growing up really comes from this, this city, this town in New Jersey. It's a, it's a lot of my formative years and a lot of um, just my uh, being acculturated to the U.S. came from, from living in Newark. Well, that's great. And I guess to skip ahead several, several years, what kind of drove you to getting a PhD in psychology and what led you to Columbia University? Wow, that's, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> it, it actually started a little bit after the arrival, I think, you know, to the U.S. Okay. Um, Interestingly enough, you know, even though we're fast forwarding, <laughs> um, so it was like, you know, I, I just, this came to me as far as insight, it came to me after I had already completed many of the years of my PhD, you know, kind of just like thinking like, what, what did lead me here? Like, how did I even land at this place? Um, and it was really kind of thinking back to being a very intuitive child, being very 
emotionally attuned and picking up on a lot of the emotions around me. And I remember being in the National Visa Center over in my, um, my hometown in Newark, and we would frequent the National Visa Center in order to um, procure um, citizenship. We were residents at the time, and we were also trying to procure um, citizenship for my dad, who was still in the Dominican Republic. And I just remember every time we would go, <clears throat> excuse me, we might need to put that out. <laughs> every time we would go, yeah, every time we would go, we would, um, we would see like a lot of people getting, you know, rejections or just having a tough time during the interview and feeling really down and out. And I would just feel so saddened by everybody that I would see. Um, and, and I remember telling my mom, I really want to do something about this. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, you know, I, I just, I remember that being, I think where my mission really started, but I, I thought that I would be like a reporter and I went to, to undergrad for media studies and I thought that I would, you know, kind of report on some of the issues that I'm really passionate about. I didn't really even know that mental health was a part of our existence or that there was an actual field that catered to mental health. Um, and it wasn't until I had a colleague when I was already in, in working in media, I had a colleague who actually attended therapy and she was Latina, she was Cuban. And I remember her recommending that I consult with somebody. I think I was going through a transition at that time. And um, I was talking to her about it. And she's like, hey, you should probably like consider, you know, going to therapy and like talking to somebody about this. And also, um, I remember that therapist telling me that I would make a great therapist, <laughs> which was a, <laughs> definitely a motivator. Um, but uh I started off really just volunteering in my hometown of Newark and, and going into different establishments through an organization where I got to volunteer in the mental health field. And I loved it. So it was like bringing me full circle into being able to serve people in my community. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really filling. Like it fills yeah. my soul. And I, I, um, I took a leap of faith. I just, I said, you know, I'm going to leave my career of five years and I'm going to, I'm going to be a student again. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I landed at, um, at applying to my master's program, which I went to Seton Hall in, in New Jersey. And then a mentor there, Dr. Sandra Lee, she suggested that I apply to Columbia. Interestingly enough, I didn't even know what Ivy League institutions were right. or what Columbia was. I just knew it was close to home and I wanted to be close to family. And so, yeah. You know, yeah, my, my professor, Dr. Lee, she's the one that, that said, hey, this is a good school. You should really, they want you, you should go. <laughs> yeah. But I, I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. I had no <laughs> idea what Columbia was. <laughs> I think yeah. that, well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your journey. I think it's really refreshing and enlightening to hear how much you've actually thought about, you know, where did this start? and you kind of able to trace the steps of what led you down that path and what led you into the job and the profession that you're in and I think that's really so many times I just feel like when you ask somebody that question it's you, you know you can tell the person hasn't really thought much about it and it's I don't know it really is insightful and just really interesting to hear your journey and I think it's kind of amazing you know that you weren't caught up in like you said the Ivy Leagues or the names of it it was you know because Columbia of course is an amazing school and it has all of that going on but it's really it's just kind of refreshing to hear you talk about it and hear that it, it just kind of was the path that life took you on <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I really do believe I know it sounds like you know more along kind of like the spiritual route or maybe a little hokey but I really do believe this field found me I, I feel like I've been just along I for love the journey. Yeah. yeah I do believe that honestly but I think that I I believe you when you say it so I think that's mm -hmm. 
That's really special. So can you tell me what do your days look like now? Like what does your job look like now that you're done with school, you're out of school and you know, you're an official therapist, your official psychologist. <laughs> yeah. My days are a little bit um, out of the norm of really what I anticipated they would be <laughs> when I graduated. Um, I, I was such a high performing, you know, high, like, um, you know, just high performing, like very busy student that I think I, I took that on in my professional life as well. And I just continued the busy. Um, I feel like I um, just have, my mind is always, you know, kind of thinking and um, I'm always doing something and I operate well that way. It doesn't actually stress me out or anything. So I I wear multiple hats now in the same ways that I did when I was a student. Um, And I have been, for the recent years, I have been a full-time clinician at a New York hospital in addition to also, and that would be, I guess, what you would consider my nine to five, um, but also um, in private practice. So I also have my own clients and the the hospital job, I literally um, just completed it. I just uh, terminated yeah. my, my job and I'm now just a full-time private practice clinician. Which is kind of a dream. (laughs) Thank you. It's definitely a dream, and I'm very excited about it. Um, And then I'm also teaching. I always teach on the side. Even when I was a student, I was still a professor. So I was, you know, teaching. Um, I would teach in the genetics counseling um, program at the Columbia University Medical Center. And then I would also teach at the Columbia main main campus in the counseling psychology department. Um, And so I've kept the, the teaching. Um, positions and then of, of course I do a little dabbling in, in social media here and there which is fun <laughs> and I yeah. consult with with corporations my goodness I wear a lot of hats is what I'm trying <laughs> to say <laughs> yeah I think I that, well it sounds like you keep it very interesting you're <laughs> I'm sure you're never bored when it comes to work <laughs> that's for sure yeah and I everything that I do I love you know so yeah. It doesn't really even feel all that much like work. It just feels like just my day, you know, and, and I love it. I really do. I love what I do and every bit of it, whether it's consulting, whether it's one-on-one therapy with someone, I thoroughly enjoy it. And so for me, it's, you know, it, it, it feels very aligned. Yeah. And again, congratulations for being able to go you know, full-time, I guess, as the, in private practice. I think that's, that's a major milestone and that's just sending you the best wishes in that. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you so much. I definitely want to kind of hone in and focus on what I see you post a lot about and what I feel like you're, I'm just going to go ahead and call you an expert in it because I think (laughs) that you are one, (laughs) intergenerational trauma. And just kind of breaking down some some of the basics. And just as I was preparing for the episode, just I thought, like, what would people be asking if I was listening to the podcast? And I heard, you know, it, it's not a lot of people have no idea what this phrase means. So really wanted to just take it to a simple level. So starting off, if you could just tell everybody who's listening, what exactly is intergenerational trauma? Yeah, absolutely. So intergenerational trauma is the type of trauma that uh, falls at the intersection of um, both biology and um, just the experiences that we have in life. So it's pretty unique in that way uh, because it, it gives us an opportunity to understand the ways in which trauma is passed down in a person's lineage and through a community. And to expand upon that a little bit more, um, when we break it down into um, into the, the two main factors that contribute to intergenerational trauma, on the biology end, we have the experience that 
let's say, a parent or a set of parents may have in which they themselves have had some sort of um, experience of chronic stress or chronic trauma. And when a person undergoes and embodies chronic trauma, they are embodying also an abundance of stress hormones. And those stress hormones eventually transition into sending messages to our genes to the word is like transmutate right you know to, to actually um, transform to adapt to also um, reflect the level of stress that a person undergoes on a daily basis and what happens in the womb when a baby is conceived and when a baby is you know, developing inside of the mother's womb is that the baby is then inheriting those genes that are now identified as, you know, high stress genes, as you may. And those high stress genes obviously mean that the baby now has a lot of stress hormones, uh, perhaps more than they naturally would, that flow through their system, which means that they have a high vulnerability to stress. And so on the biology end, we have that aspect of intergenerational trauma that is very unique to this type of trauma. On the social end, we have everything that happens after that baby's born. And so the baby now has a whole life ahead of them and a lot of circumstances that could very well be stressful. And if the stress is chronic for that baby or if there's high levels of stress or acuity of stress at any point in time in their lives, then they have their own experiences or could have their own experiences of, of trauma, personalized trauma. And, and so we have the, the trauma genes, if you may, that are basically inherited. And I'm saying they're not necessarily called that, but I'm saying, you know, for the sake of yeah, like right, right. <laughs> Um And then you have, you know, the social factors, all the things that happen in a person's life that could be traumatizing to them, but then make it so that you know, the, the trauma is um, continued. That makes sense. And if I understand you correctly, then when you're talking about the biology side, it, you're thinking, it, it sounded like mainly in your explanation, a lot of it boils down to the stress hormones. Is that accurate? Yeah, namely cortisol is like that one stress hormone that's like very prominent in chronic trauma. Yeah. Gotcha. And I guess to take it a step further then, so uh, I guess let's make an analogy. So let's say eye color. So my parent gene for my eye color is passed down to me. So when I'm born, mm -hmm. I get that eye color. How is there an analogy kind of similar to that eye color picture of how trauma essentially is passed between generations on the biology side? Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's all genetics, right? So, right. Absolutely. There are, you know, there's parallels there. Um the, the way that it shows up is in there being like just hyper arousal is like that main marker of trauma. So although it is not as visible as eye color or right. very noticeable at first glance as eye color, <laughs> um, it is one of those things that, you know, when you get to know a person and you see to the extent that they are a very emotionally raw person you can see you know how um that can be very similar to let's say a traumatized parent how they embody their trauma you know uh can be similar to how their parents embody their trauma and how right. emotionally vulnerable they are that makes sense and you know when i think about different studies talking about how, for example, depression seems to run in families or, you know, if you have somebody who has some substance abuse issues, it's more likely, you're more likely to be susceptible in the following generations. Is that kind of how we should think about intergenerational trauma? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have, you know, um, some of the, the kinds of conditions that we have, you know, like the ones that you mentioned that have that uh, genetic component are the depressions, bipolar depression included, right? You know, you have the anxiety, even right. psychosis, right? Trauma, now we're getting to know has that element as well. And, and so it's important for us to understand that not only do we have that element within the trauma, but then once the person is born, that they also have now a parent that is modeling. And remember, mm, like children yeah. soak up a lot of what their parents do and how their parents navigate the world, right? If the parent right. is navigating the world in a way where the parent is sending the message that the world is not safe, then the child is going to perceive the world as not safe and navigate the world in similar ways. And so there is also the modeling factor that is, you know, a part of yeah. what's passed down, if you may. Right. So it seems similar to most things. There's some nature and there's some nurture and kind of a mix there. Mm-hmm. When it comes to trauma, is there any altering of genes? at all so for example i think i've i know that i've read at some point about the descendants of survivors of the holocaust like some studies along those lines Mm -hmm. you know what is kind of the research in terms of sticking with the biology if there's any dna or genetic changes that's passed down to offspring whether I guess it be I would think I'm just thinking off the top of my mind I would think that most psychological studies would have to almost if they looked at that it would have to be almost a systematic cultural specific to a group of people such as you know like I mentioned holocaust survivors I don't really it seems like it would be hard to conduct a study of like just little groups of families mm-hmm. you know that have gone through trauma um, so I'm just yeah. curious if that exists or you know if you can educate us on whether there's any changes at all from the limited kind of data that we have yeah absolutely and the data is limited because it is a fairly new area it's a it's a new area in terms of our knowledge base um, of what is happening. Um, it's a new area in terms of um, what we're now knowing can be a part of you know, the genetic makeup of individuals that are descendants of, of traumatized beings. But the field of epigenetics is uh, the field that has the most information and data for us to, to um, hold on to in reference to this. And so, um, this field ha- really kind of evolved this idea of intergenerational trauma from, as you mentioned, the uh, studies of individuals who were descendants of Holocaust survivors and uh, attempting to understand to what extent there had been um, a difference in gene expressions in these individuals and in individuals that were considered to be in the control group or individuals that were not descendants of Holocaust survivors. And so um, what has happened more recently, I know of one study uh, that is being currently um, conducted, and I believe also still while it's being conducted, being uh, publicized as well, um, that is an expansion on onto other groups that are either marginalized groups or that are, are groups that have that undergo a persistent and pervasive amount of stress um, and including individuals that are living in poverty individuals that are racial ethnic uh, minoritized individuals like that we may understand whether or not these individuals that fall within these communities have uh, some sort of uh, gene expression that might be different than individuals that are not within these communities in, and to understand whether or not we, we might be able to find something similar to what we found with Holocaust uh, 
uh, descendants of Holocaust survivors. And so there are more and more studies being conducted with uh, larger groups of communities in order to have an understanding of whether or not these stress hormones and you know stress-induced genes can actually um, be reflective of ongoing stress by way of um, being a part of a community that is is highly stressed, basically. So we're getting more yeah. and more of that information. But at, like, like in me mentioning that literally the study is going on, that tells you just how <laughs> new this is. Because usually for something to actually hit the general public, it will be decades. Like It will live in the scientific world for some time. Right. And we'll know a bit about it. But then we have to work on how do we take something from theory to practice? And then once we do that, then the general public starts to get informed. And so, you know, but that just tells you about the newness of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that makes sense because it is, it does seem to be a newer phrase that, you know, people are kind of talking about more. And thanks to people like you, we're getting some education, at least like in social media and hearing about it that way. But you know, a lot of people, I would think, especially people tuning in, might be like, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad and, that, you know, that, you know, you're willing to have a conversation about it. The conversations are being expanded, you know, that are including intergenerational trauma so that we can have more of that knowledge base at our disposal, you know, and people can yeah. uh, just have further enlightenment as to, you know, what could be going on in their family lineage. Or in their community. For sure. Yeah. Exactly. And so I myself, I'm not a parent, but I'm kind of thinking if I was listening to this podcast and I was a parent, I think my mind would kind of be going to, okay, I don't want to pass down trauma to my kid. Mm -hmm. And I guess what would you recommend to somebody who's thinking that right now? Who's mm -hmm. kind of like, Okay, wait, so what do I do? <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. I love that question um, because it's very real, right? And I'm sure that it is yeah. absolutely the experience that people are having, right? Um, a caring parent, especially that, you know, wants the best for their kid. Um, and, you know, one thing to consider that I always like to include in the conversation around intergenerational trauma wounds is that that isn't the only thing that is passed down um, to mm. a child. You're also passing down intergenerational resilience, right? There have been many ways in which individuals that are within communities that have been highly traumatized do also embody an enormous amount of resilience an enormous amount of uh, just general strength and, um, and abundance, right? that has made it so that these individuals and these communities have survived and many have even thrived, you know, beyond the, the circumstances that they were placed upon uh, or under. And so it's important to understand that those resilience factors are also being passed down and they're being passed down in multiple forms, right? Including the ways that you orient your child emotionally, the ways that you love upon your child, the ways that you um, help your child to navigate the world, right? And the kinds of messaging that you're you're also producing for your child. And even the ways that you're showing up to life yourself, even having been mm -hmm. someone that has embodied some element of trauma, the ways that you're embodying healing, the ways that you're embodying resilience, you're modeling that as well, right? And so all of that is something to take into consideration as to what is also being, you know, passed forward. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to view everything and hopefully brings a little bit of peace to anybody who's, you know, starting to feel a little bit anxious or nervous about mm -hmm. that aspect. I think a lot of what you said so I kind of was thinking earlier how you mentioned even in a baby being formed, like in the womb, 
the hormones that are present. And so I guess even from if somebody is listening to this podcast and is pregnant or maybe they're not pregnant yet, maybe kids are just a dream that they have one day. I, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like whatever stage you're at, if you're a parent or if you're not a parent, maybe a good first step would be finding a licensed therapist to work with on your own Mm -hmm. to unpack some of your own trauma (laughs) and hopefully, you know, work some stuff out. Yeah. I couldn't have said that better myself. You know, someone who is licensed and trained, you know, in in trauma-based work would be the most well-equipped individual to be able to help with um, anything that falls under the category of trauma and things that have been produced, that have produced ongoing stress, you know, in a person's life. It's essential to get, excuse me, it's essential to get the right help. Um, And, you know, there are so many ways in which in conjunction with that kind of help a person can also create for themselves and for their children some sort of nervous system regulatory practices that can be embodied daily and you know and create that experience of um all of the the stress that is you know kind of floating about in, in a person's body and mind, right, can can actually be, um, you know, just uh, neutralized a bit, right, through, through the kinds of healing practices right. that a person can embody as well. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And I love the way that you put that. And I, I mean, it made me kind of also think, even outside of I guess we've mainly been talking about family units so far, but even whatever trauma you're experiencing on a cultural level, it sounds like it could be equally important to find a licensed therapist and practitioner to navigate some of those topics, you know, because it sounds like at least that that can also be a collective trauma or a historical trauma that's being passed on, you know, that is within you and it would be passed on um, kind of from a community aspect. Is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, and it's a, the important piece there is that the therapist would um, ideally hold the lens around the ways in which trauma has been, um, there has been a, a system that has created, that has made it so that the trauma has felt like the norm. You know, it, mm. it sometimes trauma flows through a community for so long that it becomes almost invisible, right? It just becomes so much of the norm that people don't even pick up on it. And the hope is that the therapist would have enough of an understanding of the cultural nuances and the ways that trauma is sustained or even promoted within the community itself right so that they can offer an opportunity for enlightenment and um uh you know like breaking through uh even some of the those community norms for that very individual that they're working with and so the hope is that the therapist would have more of a global systemic lens that they can apply to the work itself including that trauma lens as well in order to, to help, you know, facilitate healing that is sustainable and, you know, can get at the culture piece as well as the personal piece. Absolutely. And it, it really sounds to me like it's so key and it's so essential to find somebody who's been trained and who has, you know, a license and just had the appropriate training in the, you know, it's not something that you just want to kind of gamble on. It sounds like it's very important to connect with the right therapist and work with the right professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so essential. Um, to be honest, you know, I think if um, a person is working on trauma-based work uh, with someone that is in a licensed uh, 
trauma-based professional or someone who's working under someone else's license, I think it could get really tricky, right? Like I've seen people, you know, experience a lot of fragility, a lot of tenderness. Um, at times, um, you know, trauma-based work does yield um, the experience of, for some people of, you know, just being on the on the brink of, you know, um, the 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 worst um, mental health conditions that they've ever been in, right? And right. You, you need a person that is well trained in this work to be able to hold space for that person, and also, if needed, you know, to have the proper uh, crisis intervention that mm. they can elicit for the person if the fragility gets, you know, very intense. And so um, the most ethical thing for any professional to do that's in a wellness space is to, to make sure that they're making the proper referral for, for a licensed trauma therapist. And the, the most, the most um, healthy thing that a person can do that's seeking a healing space is to go um, to where there is somebody with the right level of training for this work. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. And as I've kind of sat here and listened and thought about things, I think when we think of the word trauma, we often think of bigger things. But of course, you know, it could be smaller events, smaller. It can be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But it really does sound like to me for intergenerational trauma, for example, if I've gone through sexual trauma and I have a child, it sounds like from a modeling perspective, like that trauma can be transmitted or passed down to my child in the way that like I haven't fully addressed the trauma within me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess for examples would be if I still feel post-sexual trauma, if I'm still feeling really uneasy and unsafe, like completely understandable if I feel those way around people that kind of remind me of the person who assaulted me. You know, those kind of things. Is that just from like a modeling perspective and my kid sees how I'm really uneasy when, for example, a, ma- a man comes around or I say stuff to my kid, like, that kind of surrounds the traumatic event, like, no, never go to this place that night or never wear that or never do this, kind of those same traumatic messages. I guess I'm just trying to, like, paint a picture, paint an example of how exactly it could be, like, a traumatic event and I chose sexual assault just as like a, a one big event kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that an accurate depiction of how trauma can be passed between generations? Yeah, it definitely can be, you know, through, through the experience of how, um, you know, that person might embody the trauma that they've, endured right like if Mm -hmm. we can think very specifically about how is that person's nervous system now restructured right as a result of the sexual trauma and then by way of it being restructured how is that person embodying stress and stress hormones and hyperarousal and all those things that are now a, a part of their new normal and and that is you know more of the biology side of like you know what we know to be you know more the nature side right of what can be transmissions on and then, you know, the modeling for sure, right? You know, now that that person's experience of the world could quite possibly be that the world feels uh, unsafe or, or less safe than it did before. And any of the uh, words that they utilize, the language that they keep, the ways in which they navigate spaces, like all those things are, um, are reflective of the experience of ongoing threat and their child is, is, you know, seeing that being modeled, then most definitely the child will then have some sort of an experience of, okay, the, then the world is this safe, but not this safe, right? And, and so this is how I navigate these spaces because there can be a threat there. So 
it's all a matter of really kind of how the modeling goes and how it's internalized. So it's a little bit more nuanced, mm -hmm. but I think, um, you know, that goes for many of the traumas, micro or macro that we might experience. I always like to use um, the example or the one that comes to mind the most for me because of how prominent it is just in, in my life being someone that navigates the world as, as a black woman um, is, you know, the ways that, for example, um, uh, black parents need to have the talk with their children about police brutality and have to, you know, tell their children, hey, you know, it, it's, it's not safe for you to encounter police, right? It's not safe for you to walk around these kinds of neighborhoods because you may not be welcome, right? And so a lot of those conversations right. create this limitation for the child and this experience that their world is not as safe as they believe or they're not protected by the individuals that they believed were, you know, to protect and serve, right? right? And so there is like that modeling of like, hey, you have to do this with police, but now they have to embody and they have to assume a position in life where now they have to, you know, like contend with the fact that life isn't as safe as they believed it to be. And so there is that, right? In addition to obviously right. um, the biology side. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense that, you know, and on the opposite side of the spectrum, that's something that I've definitely come to recognize very much so that I have been privileged and that I haven't, ha you know, that's one aspect of trauma that I've not had to endure. And I can just hearing you talk about it and hearing that conversation that is taking place as you know, a black parent and a black child that has to occur. I can see how, just like we talked about earlier, you know, you're now being alerted as a child of, okay, this isn't a space that I, I should be safe in, you know, in the world. And so that additional layer, I see what you're saying from, you know, the a family that being passed down and also just the whole culture of it's not only like intergenerational for families, but it's being passed down. It seems like for each family within the black culture and each. Um, so yeah, that I think that's an excellent example and something I'm really glad that you spoke on that as well. Yeah. I bring what? in the community aspect, you know, it's like, Oh, when we think about yeah. vulnerable populations, uh, you know marginalized populations and and the ways that you know a trauma can be collective and communal then you know this is this is one of the ways yeah absolutely I so one thing I wanted to ask you is if do you have any particular books that you like to recommend to people or that has been kind of your favorite to read about the topic of intergenerational trauma yes i have three that are like my three main go-to's that have touched me pretty deeply um and and these are like you know more so around intergenerational trauma just globally right um yeah but one of them does get at more specifically marginalized populations um and the three are is of course the staple the body keeps the score which I think everybody knows yeah. at this point um, didn't start with you by Mark Bolin is a really excellent read um, and then when ancestors weep and uh, the name of the author is escaping me but it, he is a, a he has a doctorate in psychology so PhD is behind his name and it is an incredible incredible read I think you know, those three books have been staples in, in my learning journey yeah. around this work. And then I highly recommend them for others. Okay, absolutely. I'll definitely put those in the show notes. I haven't read the last one, the When Ancestors Weep, but that sounds really good. Mm -hmm. And someone recently recommended to me, I haven't read it yet, um, My Grandmother's Hands. Oh, My Grandmother's Hands. How could I forget? Um, yeah. And... I just ordered it because 
literally it was like a week ago somebody was telling me it's one of the best books and it's so good and it's my understanding that's more on the like racialized um, trauma aspect and so I'm really excited to I'll put that in the show notes but I wanted to be sure that was I can't even remember who told me about that one but I wanted yeah, to be sure so that good. was legit. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, that book is so good that I actually, um, I could not read it in one sitting. Like it, it you know, I, li- I like to yeah. kind of really dive into books. So I get, I get very invested, but I really could not. Like I needed to um, compartmentalize, you know, the work that I was reading and, and then get back to it. It's yeah. just so powerful. Um, it's a really good read and very, very potent material in yeah. there. For sure. Well, that's amazing. I'll definitely put those in the show notes. Um, well, to wrap up our chat, I'll wrap it up on a happier note. What is just kind of one message that you would love to leave all the listeners with and that you hope that somebody could take away if they were listening today? Um, I hope it's not too Pollyanna-ish, but I, um, you know, if you're listening, then you're here and you're surviving. And I hope that you can take a moment to just allow yourself to just be one with that fact and, and honor yourself in this moment you know um, that's just from the heart it just came Aww, so it's nothing yeah. <laughs> but I, I hope it reaches the right soul <laughs> yes that's beautiful well thank you so much dr bouquet i absolutely value you value your time and i value all that you're putting out in the world and doing for the world i very much appreciate you Thank you. I appreciate you too. And thank you so much for being in conversation with me. I had a a good time speaking with you. Thank you.